This podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com. Welcome back to another episode of Pizza and Parsecs. I'm Dave. I'm Liv. And for some reason, that was very funny to you. I'm still laughing about this thing. Do you want to explain? Dave has this tool in his office that was strategically placed no. in my designated area of living. And I asked him what it was for. And then try to problem solve what it was for for the last, what would you say, 10 minutes? And started getting very paranoid because I, he wouldn't tell me what it was for. And now I know what it's for. It's for your psoas. It's a recovery tool. But I tried all of these different tactics. Like, oh, maybe it hangs things on the side of the wall. Or maybe it holds your phone. Which was, Maybe it holds a lighter. Well, it was next to it. They're both blue. Oh. <laughs> you know, maybe they go together. This is not a safe thing to have next to me either, because you know what I'm going to be doing? Fire. You might want to take that away from me. (laughs) I podcast with children. I say children because you represent many of them. (laughs) (laughs) This is true, though. There's a lighter. I like fire. At any rate. Welcome back. Super excited to be bringing y'all this here episode today. Real quick plug right here up at the top. We are proud to call the Red 5 Network home. Make sure you head over to red5network.com to check out all of the other great podcasts that we've got to offer. If you like us, we know you'll like them. So not going to bury the lead here, but we're talking about The Matrix today. And I firmly believe that the way the best way to talk about The Matrix is to talk about all three of the films, maybe even bringing in a little bit of Animatrix in as well. And talk about them all at once. For me, the story is so incredibly deep and rich. And the way that each film informs the next one is incredibly profound and really awesome. And the what I really like about it is it just had this really profound impact on the way I think about and internalize the story. When I look at them all at once, it's an incredibly unique film. It's a story about purpose, love, unity, and hope. And we're super, super stoked to be talking about it. So here in part one, which we're probably going to end up splitting into two episodes, we're going to be chatting about things that we saw in the films, the themes, messages, arcs, sights and sounds, and generally what we found to be interesting and thought provoking. Basically, stuff that we typically cover in our discussions. Now, in part two, we're going to dive a little deeper into the religious undertones or overtones in the Matrix and the and these films, specifically the influence of the Bible and Christianity. And we're super excited about this one because for this discussion, we got Michelle and Natalie from Force of Light Entertainment coming in to chat with us. I'm so excited. Because that that is where your home is when thinking about movies. Especially the Matrix. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But finally, we're going to wrap things up with an episode dedicated to the legacy of the Matrix, the influence and cultural and social impacts that it had, and just taking a moment to chat about the upcoming production of Matrix 4. So 
I'm fired up, Liv. Are you fired up? Yes. Needless to say, we're going to be talking a lot of Matrix for the next foreseeable future. Yes. When we were trying to plan this out and thinking about all of the depth and the layers that these films have to offer, there was no way that we could... We didn't see a way to even begin to scratch the surface of what is behind these movies in an episode or even two episodes, Mm -hmm. which is why we're splitting it up into so many. And it, trust me, it's gonna they're going to be full. <laughs> I was trying to figure out a joke, but I couldn't think of a joke. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. This is going to be fun. So let's get things kicked off here with a little bit of background uh, and history to The Matrix. So much like Phantom Menace, let's head back to 1999. And this is a huge year for filmmaking. Arguably... One of the biggest achievements in American cinema history is this year, 1999. So aside from The Matrix, were there any other films that really stuck out to you? Phantom Menace. Because <laughs> it was awful. Um, I'm just kidding. Kidding. Oh, th- th- this is going to be a long episode. <laughs> um. I remember really loving and really diving deep into The Sixth Sense. M. Night Shyamalan is one of my favorite directors. So, and that came out in 1999. So, to answer your question, that one stands out to me the most. Okay. I wasn't going to the movies as much back in 1999. I didn't see that one in the movie theaters. I was too young. Okay. Gotcha. But I didn't really go to the movie theaters either. I think Toy Story 2 is probably one of the few movies I went out to see from 99. Gotcha. I do remember seeing Phantom Menace in theaters. We yeah, talked about that, that experience mm-hmm. there. I remember going to see Austin Powers with my best friend. We thought it was hilarious at the time. You know, we're 12-year-old kids. No, we're 11-year-old kids at the time and had a lot of teenage boy humor in it, and that was awesome. But as I grew older... I fell more in love with the other stories that came out that year, Fight Club being one of them, which spawned my deep dive into getting to know Chuck Palahniuk. His catalog of incredibly thoughtful and thought-provoking novels. Phantom Menace, of course. Office Space is another one that really hits home for me. Guy working in IT. I'm about that life. That, That film spoke to me. Blair Witch Project, which, of course, is one of the first well-known found footage films and spawned an entire genre of those films. Without Blair Witch Project, we don't have things like Paranormal Activity, Bad Ben, Record, all of these found footage movies that we get today. And arguably, Blumhouse Productions itself would not be a thing. I remember really appreciating 10 Things I Hate About You. I didn't see it in the theaters, but now, like to this day, it's one of the few quote-unquote chick flicks that Mm -hmm. I really love that is is directly correlated to Shakespearean plays because it's basically Taming of the Shrew. Other movies like that that didn't necessarily come out in 1999, but I feel like 10 Things I Hate About You really pioneered that, oh, well, let's take the Shakespearean plays and turn them into some kind of fun chick flick would be um, She's the Man is another one. Um, Easy A is... Not necessarily Shakespeare, but it has that kind of literary, like, aside to it. Mm-hmm. Um, what's another one? We just talked about Mean Girls. Mean Girls is one. All of these different kind Pride, of- Pride, Prejudice, and, and Zombies? I never saw that. 
nor did I read it because it looked freaky. I, I also didn't like Pride and Prejudice at I, all. I was just making a joke. Oh, okay. If it wasn't for ten, 10 Things I Hate About You, I think we wouldn't have had the same outlook on Shakespearean plays in mainstream medias. So, and that's a great one. I just talked to Rachel about 10 Things I Hate About You like a couple weeks ago because she was watching it. It's a good one. It's, it's one that we want actually want to cover at some point, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. We want to do a whole kind of series on the literary and Shakespearean influences in movies, which is fun. Because then She's the Man is one of them. Oh, my God. <laughs> Buckle up, folks. Flip phone. <laughs> The Mummy was another really big one for that year for me. I I remember watching The Mummy, and that just stuck with me for such a long time. And then, you know, we get these follow-up movies on The Mummy, too, as well, which it's all great. Michelle and Natalie actually did an episode on The Mummy, and uh, so make sure you guys check that out. A couple others I want to mention are Galaxy Quest, big Trek fan. So Galaxy Quest really spoke to me, and it was a love letter to all the nerds that are sitting out there. Absolutely love Galaxy Quest. I actually didn't end up seeing Galaxy Quest until about a year ago. And I've watched it probably like four or five times since. It's so good. I love it. Cruel Intentions was another one. (laughs) I unapologetically love Cruel Intentions. And the last one that I want to mention is Dogma. I just watched that one recently. Yeah, I introduced you to A View Askew Universe with Dogma being one of those. Yeah, it was funny. Maybe laugh. So obviously such a huge year for cinema. And then you have The Matrix, which came out in like March of that year. And to me, it's still a standout, even with other f- f- other great artistic films like American Beauty, The Green Mile, like it's still stu- stuck out. So let's let's actually get into The Matrix proper, shall we? The Matrix was written and directed by the Wachowski brothers, at least at the time. It should be noted that since the release of these films, the Wachowskis, originally Larry and Andy Wachowski, have both come out as transgender, becoming Lana and Lily Wachowski. Now, Lana is actually the first Hollywood director to actually do that. So that's just really cool. And there's a lot of groundbreaking aspects to this film. And I guess it could be said that even the directors themselves as people are groundbreaking as well. Now, this is only the third film that the Wachowskis had ever done. And what's really cool is it was treated as almost an Artur-type film, driven by the Wachowskis and their creative vision almost entirely. Warner Brothers just sending them money and letting them do their thing on the condition that they would film it in Australia. Their only request at the end of the day was to cut out about five minutes from the final cut. Now, this wasn't without significant work on their part, though. It was a very conceptual film that had a lot of big ideas that had never really been attempted before. And for the Warner Brothers executives to really grasp it, they teamed up with comic book illustrators Steve Scrooge and Jeff Darrow to illustrate basically a massive graphic novel. It was a huge storyboard session that they had to present to the Warner Brothers executives. And in terms of what their intention behind the matrix was i'm going to read you a clo- i'm going to read you a quote from lana wachowski our main goal with the matrix was to make an intellectual action movie we like action movies guns kung fu but we're tired of assembly line action movies that were devoid of any intellectual content 
we were determined to put as many ideas into the movie as we could. And I think this is a movie that accomplishes just that. Artistically, these movies challenge or can challenge the audience to think intelligently about the film. Simultaneously, it's a visual spectacle. No one's going to argue that. And really, you could enjoy it from just purely a fun perspective. And for me, it's just, it's truly one of the best examples of films that you get out of it what you put into it. This is a film that was not only successful in theaters, but it was also really successful in DVD sales. In theaters, it made $460 million on a modest $65 million budget. And in terms of DVD sales, in the first week, it sold 780,000 units. And that doesn't even include online retailers, one of which accounts for about 50,000. So you just add that on top of that 780. And the, you know, the numbers are just astronomical. A uh, couple other really quick fun facts. Famously, Will Smith turned down the role for Neo in favor of making Wild Wild West. His wife would then join the Matrix in She's Reloaded. Sandra Bullock was even asked to play Neo at one time. And for that, they would have changed Neo to be a girl. That would have been a monstrosity. <laughs> Sorry. And in terms of like the Kung Fu and martial arts aspect, because that's a huge aspect of this, is Hong Kong cinema and martial arts. They got martial arts choreographer, I'm going to butcher this, Yen Wu Ping, who did the choreography for Drunken Master and basically helped put Jackie Chan on the map from a fight, fighting choreography standpoint. Now, what I wanted to do next was to give a synopsis of the films. However... I can't really describe it. It's really one of those movies that I feel like you need to experience for yourself to understand what it is. I mean, yes, I could read you the synopsis of IMDb, but in terms of how I describe it, I would just say watch it. There, There's just so many different layers to this that you could use to describe this movie. Superficially, there's a there's this character named Neo who becomes super powerful, and the humans versus machines. There's simulation, virtual reality. It's I don't know. Liv, how how would you describe the Matrix? Well, I think it all depends on what perspective you're coming from. Some people would describe the Matrix as a very clear cut biblical and Christianity centered type movie with highlights of human aspects to it. Um, other people would describe this as probably one of the best action movies of its time. And even of, I think current times, I still to this day do not know a movie that I think outdoes this action wise. And it's been like 20 years, 21 years later. I think the best way to go about it, you, you know, you said it, you said it best was go and watch it. But if you're somebody who's like, oh, but I don't want to watch all three movies. They're each two hours plus long. You're a chicken. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. Um, the best way I could describe it is you have a central character named Neo who pretty much is learning how to come into his own and develops his own identity within a prophecy that has been placed upon him um, with the help of a team of pirates you know, you could call them pirates. They have a ship and all that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, pirates. And their their 
job and their journey is to continue to support and and continue to enlighten the one into his prophecy and, and protecting him moving forward while also learning what it means to blindly have faith throughout the the movie. There's obviously love within it. There's loss within it. There's awesome action sequences. But and then at its core, we look at just the the conceptual idea of what would life look like if we had to plug into a mm, computer every day to live our life opposed to actually going about our day to day in the real world. Like it kind of has this AI type feel to it. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a cyberpunk fairy tale. Oh yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You you watch a movie like The Matrix and you see that there's just so many different influences from pieces of sci-fi to philosophers to religions and it just puts them all together at once. And at the end of the day, what the film does is quite remarkable. It it almost forces you as the audience to answer and contemplate a laundry list of questions. Yeah. But I think like as a synopsis standpoint, it's just a lot easier instead of going movie by movie, scene by scene, big moment by big moment. It's a lot easier if you just go and experience it for yourself and then come back and with your own opinions of the movie. Because, you know, we could, we could, we could sit here all day and it would be multiple parts of just going about the movie and saying, okay, first scene, you know, Neo wakes up, he's this hacker, Mr. Anderson's going, you know, 90 miles an hour doing illegal things, blah, 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 blah. But it's not as entertaining and it's definitely going to be a biased opinion because I'm coming at it from one standpoint, you're coming at it from another standpoint, just racing off and telling you exactly what this movie looks like is going to have a bias to it. So go watch go watch the movie yourself. Definitely. Or you're a chicken. <laughs> Don't be a chicken. Now, before we start answering some of those questions and diving deeper into the many layers that this film has to offer, Liv, what is your relationship looked like with the Matrix trilogy? So it started off with, because in 1999, I was a grand year old of, that was not a sentence. In 1999, (laughs) I was about (laughs) seven years old. I was seven when this movie came out. So when my dad went and saw it, because it was rated R, like I wasn't, I wasn't even near close enough to like watch this movie in an appropriate setting. But when my dad saw it, he immediately saw like the cool action sequences, the really cool symbolisms behind the movie and allowed us to watch the, like the fight scenes at first. And I remember watching, he would let us watch the fight scene between Morpheus and Neo and that whole like, I know Kung Fu moment and getting to see all of that, which was really cool. And then the final fight scene between Neo and Smith, which is super dope in itself. But as I got older and as the other two movies started to come out and the understanding of the biblical terms and the biblical like standings behind the movies 
started being more and more apparent, my parents felt a little bit more comfortable letting us watch the not-so-gruesome or not-so-rated-M scenes. So we would fast-forward through things that were probably more inappropriate for a 13-year-old, 12-year-old child in that context. So we would get to watch the whole movie, and we would get to actually participate in understanding and realizing what the movie was about and getting to deep dive into the movies. That was about the time that the third one came out. So that's my relationship. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. I just remember one of the biggest things I remember about this movie was reenacting scenes with my friends. Hmm. You know, we'd be at the pool and one of us would pretend to be the Asian at the edge of the pool. And another one of us would be like a Trinity type character and, you know, hustle up to the side of him, dodge this. <laughs> and then you'd fall into the pool. It, it was a really fun action ride that was that ha- had something for me as a a teenager at the time is when I saw the movie. I was only 10, 11 years old at the time of this movie. But when I eventually saw it, I was probably a teenager, like 12, 13. Right. So it had something for me at that point, for sure. It, it just it was just such a spectacle. I was awestruck with the look and the feel of the movie, completely oblivious to all of the undertones that it had and all of the layers and the messaging. At the time, you know, I'm obviously not thinking about those sort of things. 12, 13 years old, I'm not thinking about those sort of things. But what's cool is like, as I grew up, the Matrix kept on giving me more and more. I began to be able to better conceptualize and understand what the movie meant. Probably the first instance of that wasn't actually when I watched the movie. It was in 2003 when Enter the Matrix came out on Xbox. And I played that game so much. And I got really, really invested in that story. And I must have played through that game several times. And as I play that game, it really encouraged me to can, to go back and rewatch the movies as well. So all I'd say is this is a movie that just keeps on giving. Because even as I'm sitting here, you know, getting ready to talk about this and discuss this movie with you, 20 plus years after this movie has come out, I'm still getting new information about it and understanding more and more. It's still giving all of that. And I just think that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think everyone has a different relationship with the Matrix. Like, again, for me, it was this very obvious, like, let's look at the faith aspect of it for my parents. So it was like, oh, well, let's look at, you know, well, who is Neo? Uh, who is Trinity? Who is Morpheus to you? What does this hidden meaning mean and even going deeper and something that I got to point out to you was the in reloaded getting to dive deep into what the license plates mean and who has what part in the license plates and not a whole lot of people unless you've taken that extra 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 step recognize like oh that license plate has a bible verse attached to it it's like insane so there was always this okay we're gonna watch this rated r movie but what can we bring out of it and even like you know i stand by what you said even now there's so many things that i'm even rediscovering and having new outlooks on it like 
when I was younger, I thought, oh, the all three of these movies just represent the Gospels. Well, the older I've gotten, the more I've watched it as an adult, I don't think the same thing. So my relationship with it has always been ever-changing and ever-developing, which is fun. Yeah. One of the first things that I wanted to kick us off with appropriately as we dive into the Matrix, much like Neo, our very own Thomas Anderson, he had to make a choice, the red pill or the blue pill. So as we begin to like unpack the Matrix, thinking about themes, characters, messages, and arcs, I wanted to start by talking about the element of choice, truth, and ignorance within the Matrix. And I'll get us kicked off with talking about choice, because that's probably one of the, the biggest themes that is persistent throughout all of these films. And the first thing that I'd like to point out here is I love that all of the choices we're presented with are between two things. Mm-hmm. Red pill, blue pill, save Morpheus, save yourself, left door, right door. These are binary decisions, Yeah, which seems incredibly appropriate for a world manufactured by sentient machines that think in ones and zeros. You know, we learn from the architect that the reason the Matrix failed is because humans need choice, which can loosely be synonymous with free will in this context but it's it needed that human element or at least the illusion of it an element that the oracle introduced more on her and free will later because they bestowed this element of perceived choice it also gives humans the ability to choose to leave the matrix albeit this only accounts for about one percent of the population that actually capitalized and leveraged that opportunity outside of the matrix the machines don't have direct control over the humans. Instead, they have indirect control by simply allowing their settlement, Zion, to exist. Now, it should also be noted that the machines, they attempt to kill you when you leave the Matrix. Like, as soon as you are flushed out of your pod, you fall into this huge lake, basically. And you can't swim because all your muscles are atrophied. Neo would have drowned had the Nebuchadnezzar not used the claw to retrieve him. And when Neo is with the architect, going back and forth here, sorry. But when he's with the architect, he already knew what choice he was going to make. This was the sum of his prior experiences. Falling in love with Trinity, he was always going to save Trinity. (laughs) He was always going to save Trinity. And this falls under the deterministic philosophy that these films present us with, among countless other philosophies here. Having said that, I believe that the choice itself is free will. The outcome of those choices is not. And for these advanced machines, can easily be determined. The outcome of those things can easily be determined, especially when you take into account the fact that most of the choices are binary. Free will does not necessarily dictate the outcome. This is how Neo was able to re-enter the Matrix, save Trinity, and save Zion. So that was a lot on choice. (laughs) I like attempting to think about choice in this because it's really complicated. Well, and we can also look at it from a different perspective as well. Morpheus had choices. 
And the Oracle herself even had choices. We look at the Oracle being a complete created opposite of the architect for humanity. And at the very end, she tells the architect that she chooses to have hope. She didn't know that this was going to be the outcome. She didn't have any idea that this was actually going to be a prophecy that finally gets fulfilled, but she chose to have hope, which just continues to elaborate even deeper on the humanity aspect of the machines and their choice to lay down and let Zion actually live, which is really cool. Right. Yeah. I mean, Morpheus had a choice to follow Neo. And even when he doubted the whole reality, like Neo went to the architect, he came back and Morpheus is like, "Uh, Zion's supposed to like be on top. Like everything's supposed to be fine now. He still chose to follow and believe in Neo and believe in the prophecy, even when everything was stacked against his beliefs, you know? But yeah, I think choice being a huge centerpiece and a huge core strand throughout the whole movie, we're presented as normal people, not movie people, with choices every single day. And it's how we handle those choices and how we move forward in those choices that structure us further. Right. Specifically, I thought it'd be fun to put ourselves in Neo or even Cypher's shoes for a moment. You know, which pill would you take? Would you take the red pill or the blue pill? And the reason I bring Cypher into it is because I think the same question could be asked about Cypher, where he saw reality as so bleak and difficult, and he had the opportunity to be reinserted back into the Matrix, not remember anything, and live in this state of blissful ignorance. So which world would you choose to live in? Which pill would you take? I personally would take the red pill only because I believe that if I were put in that position of blind faith, I'd follow it. Okay. You know, being told, hey, this is option A, this is option B. You can live in this ignorance. You can just follow the norm. You can go with the grain taking the blue pill, you'll wake up tomorrow and go about your merry way. That's, for me, that's not something that I have ever been content with. I've always loved the idea of rising up against, going against the grain, being the different one, and I would have taken the red pill. And then if I had to eat that nasty slop-looking stuff every day, at least I have really cool abilities to go back into the Matrix and fly crap. You hate oatmeal. I hate oatmeal. But it's not You wouldn't make it very long. <laughs> no, but it wasn't it wasn't a question of do you take their blue pill and eat regular food all the time? Or take the red pill and eat oatmeal for the rest of your life. Like there's no that's I guess that's a consequence of blind faith. Well, you know, technology at that point had come so far that they're rebels in this, right? The crew of the Nebuchadnezzar went we have the tasty wheat debacle, the, the, that conundrum, and talking about the taste of food. You would think that if they were able to create their own technology to hack into the Matrix, that they could also somehow 
create like almost a USB type drive where everything tasted like better. <laughs> you would think, but I don't think that's their priority. I think their priorities were in a different mindset than oh, I agree. I'm just oatmeal. I'm, I'm just I'm just saying. I like oatmeal. I would have been fine. I love me some oatmeal. Nah, I would have eventually been okay with it. I would have lived. You are live. I know, but I would have definitely survived the whole oatmeal thing if that meant like I can program how to fly a helicopter in like five seconds. Like that's super dope, and in the process kick evil butt maybe this entire trilogy is about oatmeal i don't think so no no okay yeah you're probably right i don't think it's about oatmeal what pill would you choose i spent a ton of time thinking about this and i'm gonna put bottom line up top here take the red pill i think there's a lot of really interesting things to unpack here when we're presented with this question in the context of the movie uh robert nozick presented an interesting thought experiment 30 years ago called the experience machine basically just like cypher you knowingly choose to be hooked up to a machine that would give you experiences having friends success joy whatever makes you happy you'd never know about your prior life or that you're hooked up to a machine the question he presented was, would you choose to be hooked up to it? This brings up uh, another question, you know, what is truth? For many, truth is based off of subjective experience and perception. And if you subscribe completely and 100% to this experiential truth, I would think you'd make the decision to take the blue pill or being hooked up to the experience machine, much like Cypher chose. He just wants to live his best life, and you believe in your heart of hearts that you have all these friends, are happy, and just live in the state of complete bliss. What you experience, you interpret as truth. And as I said before, I take the red pill, so obviously I prefer objective truth. Objective reality is important for me, and I would want to know and experience that just as it is, even if it's awful. <laughs> um and I think a lot a lot of us would out there. But what's equally as interesting when talking about which truth do we seek and how the movie doesn't really tell us what the right or the wrong answer is there. What's interesting about that is this concept of truth is not only applied in the movie, but also to what we're doing now in our interpretation of the films. How we as the viewer have the ability to find the truth when thinking about the Matrix. In an interview with Ken Wilber, who along with Princeton University religion professor Cornell West provided us with the philosopher's commentary for all three films, he was interviewing Lana Wachowski and talked about the reason that they never released their own commentary. The implication of the creators doing their own commentary is that they would essentially be introducing a dogma or a canonical meaning behind these films. And they have a respect for the subjective nature of the film, and they don't want to invalidate anyone's interpretation of it. Not only that, but I mentioned this philosopher's commentary. Obviously, this commentary is dense, really, really dense, and full of meaning for these, these two guys that glean so much from these films. What's interesting is that the other commentary track features two film critics that found... Little to no meaning, and according to the Wachowskis, hated hated the films. 
So you juxtapose those two perspectives together and leave it to the audience to take what they will from it. And this is a conscious decision from the Wachowskis. And for me, the discussion about the truth behind these movies is one of the reasons why it's endured so well. It's because they haven't explicitly said that this is what this means. This is what that means. You're meant to pull from it and interpret it how you will. I'm going to go back to your truth thing really quick. The cipher part. Okay. I think it's really intriguing that when presented with the opportunity of if it's presented in a different mindset, because the way that you presented the alternate kind of reality where you are experiencing joy, you have friends, you're hooked up to this thing, and it is your perception of truth, and you live through this happy life, compared to the way Morpheus expresses blue pill and red pill, like, you can wake up in your bed, you're completely fine, everything's normal, you don't have to worry about anything. And then the red pill being like, actual truth like you you will wake up in the real world you'll experience real world decisions and you know i think it's really interesting that a lot of people probably would take the blue pill or take the opportunity for the joy and happiness but as you were talking about that and as you were you know going through that part of your deep dive how depressing would it be to in the back of your mind always remember at some point that this isn't actually real because there's got to be some kind of subconscious memory. Like we we hold memories so differently in our mind. There's got to be something that no matter no matter what we pick or how we how we go about our lives, there's still that small back of your mind realization of truth. And that truth is that it's not actually real. So sitting back and thinking like Okay, yeah, but people who take the blue pill, I wonder if at some point, like, there's only so much you can actually wipe. There's only so much that you can actually do when your eyes and your mind have experienced something. So how sad would it be to always in the back of your mind think this is actually not real? Well, I think that's kind of what Neo's life has been like and 1% of the population who don't accept the matrix right it's that's what morpheus described as the splinter in your mind Mm -hmm. and that brings in this this buddhist concept of basically eternal suffering Mm -hmm. and not necessarily and i don't mean suffering as in i'm in pain all the time it's a state of complete and um cyclical discontent right and I like that they kind of introduced that aspect into it as well, along with, you know, you see a lot of Christian faith in this. You see a lot of the Buddhist faith in this and the Hindu faith in this. And there's so much to it. It really is a a depressing thought Yeah. to feel trapped because once I, I would fear like once you go back and if you do have that splinter in your mind, you would not be able to escape that. Right. And, you know, we don't actually know what happens, quote unquote, to Cypher. We don't know if they actually give him his wishes. I mean, he dies. I was about to say, he's dead. I know. But like, let's let's for a second think that he didn't die. 
Okay. Yeah, let's take this moment of Cypher successfully did exactly what Mr. You know, Agent Smith wanted. And what if he did, he, he probably would have gone insane. I would imagine that a human mind would not be able to know the information he knew, even though he would forget or not have any recollection of his previous life. I feel like that would drive someone insane. Having that splinter or that minute knowledge of there is something more out there and then not ever having the conceptual grasp on what it actually is. It's like knowing truth, but only 1% of the truth. I think with Cypher's personality, though, that he would be okay with that. Mm. I think if somebody like Trinity were to be reinserted, yeah, she'd go crazy. Morpheus go back in. He'd go crazy. Right. I don't know. I I would actually lean more on the, I think I disagree with you. I think Cypher would actually go crazy. Because he picked the red pill at the beginning of this. Like, it's obvious he, he made the decision. He was curious enough to live that life. But through outside influences, he made the opposite decision of, oh, I want to go back. I think he would have gone insane. Well, it would depend on, uh, you know, he'd been out of the Matrix for a number of years. 11 years, I think, is what Yeah, I think he, he said, said nine, maybe it was 11. Something like that. He'd been liberated from the Matrix like a decade before. And I wonder, like, with him being reinserted back into the Matrix, wiping his memory clean, if that also wipes how he fundamentally changed as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, how much of that fundamental change would there be as well? Like, what would he go back in as? Would he be the same visually the same person would he have the same core values like it's just there's so much but he never actually makes it because he dies yes cypher dies he's dead man yeah yeah hey friends dave here if you're enjoying this here discussion on the matrix make sure you head over to wstr galactic public access episode 185 the good folks at WSTR had Liv and I on to chat all things Chosen One, talking about Neo, and of course we're relating it back to Star Wars, Anakin, Luke, prophecies, the whole nine yards. So make sure you guys go over there, and again, that's episode 185. Check that out, give it a listen. It was an awesome time. And now back to the show. The next thing that I wanted to dive into was this idea that Neo and Agent Smith are connected and their journeys parallel one another. So, Liv, I'll start with you. What did you think about their connectivity, their parallel journey? What did you see there? Um, Well, I think removing the religious part out of it, because I know we're going to talk about that in the episode with our wonderful friends. There's always, there always has to be some kind of direct and op, like direct and parallel opposite to a protagonist. There's always got to be that antagonist there. And I think one of the most connective pieces that the audience can feel is when they see a direct correlation and a, you know, almost a side by side likeness between our good guy and our bad guy. And they see that comparison of they could be the same. They just made 
one choice that was different or they made one step this way and it changed the course of their entire lives. You know, because I think we could easily sit back and say, all right, what if Neo was Agent Smith and Agent Smith was Neo? Because they almost have identical lives. They almost have identical, you know, choices and moving forward. One's just a virus, in my opinion. I consider Agent Smith like a virus. And one is the alternate or alt control delete button for for the said virus. Because that's how you get rid of viruses, right? You're IT. You know that. You are harming me (laughs) on such a level right now. I have been planning for that joke this whole time. Um, (laughs) I'm not IT, so I don't actually know. So I love this like almost peaceful harmony between the two that creates such massive um, opposition between the two of them, where one seeks power, one seeks to restore one seeks total like total annihilation and total you know saturation of himself and wants to see himself through every aspect of the matrix the other is willing to lay his life down multiple times to give the freedom of choice to everyone in the matrix you know while one sits back and says i want everyone to stay within this world because if I keep everyone here, I can influence and manipulate and infect everyone around me. The other one is like, we need to give free will and free choice to everybody. Here's how we have to do it. And they are in, they're in opposition with each other because of that. And obviously, this is a surface level because I'm going to keep the religious part out of it. And that's really difficult for me to do because all I ever see with this movie is the faith aspects of this movie. So I'm struggling with finding non-spoiler words for this question because I want to save all of my spoiler words for next episode. I was wondering if this was going to be a challenging episode set for you. Can you tell it's extremely challenging? Because all I ever do with with any movie, I sit back and I see the the ways I can utilize it to spread the gospel or I could utilize this like desire or this, this liked movie, this connection that I can have with other people who love the Matrix who may not know the Lord, I can be like, oh, well, what about this aspect? And what about this aspect? And kind of, it's it's really difficult. And I don't know if it's obvious. It's hard to, for me to find words. And I have sat and reread and read and like thought about how I want to word this. And I was trying to write stuff down, but everything I wrote down would go straight back to a faith-based concept. You have trouble taking that hat off. I do have trouble because that's that's something I do with all of the movies I watch mm-hmm. because I love doing that. I am no theologian, but I think it'd be really cool one day to maybe like when I do go back to school, I want to go to school and have a minor in theology because I would love to be able to deep dive even more into biblical aspects from an outside perspective, which the school that I can go to for my psych degree has a theology minor, which would be super fun. So it's really hard for me to sit here and say, oh, yeah, there's similarities, but they hate each other without going deeper into, well, one is sin and one is literally infecting the entire world of sin. And the other is the Holy Spirit, Jesus figure going through and eliminating sin. There's my one spoiler. I'll go deeper. I knew you were going to work it in. I lasted an hour. You couldn't help yourself. I lasted an hour. 
That's better than what I anticipated. So that's the best way I can do it without stealing next episode's show. See, I think it's really interesting because you you do have a really hard time taking off that hat. Yeah. It's my life. It's what I do. And because of that, you do it so incredibly well. Thank much you. better than I could ever do. I I can put on that hat, but it's like a 10-gallon hat for a one-quart head. Oh. <laughs> well, like it it doesn't fill it doesn't fill it up at all. I'm more like the the Ben Ben Franklin mm-hmm. when it comes to looking at, you know, which hats I'm going to wear. You know, Ben Franklin was a politician, he was a scientist, he was all of these different things. Uh literally jack of all trades, master of none. And that's how I kind of approach these episodes that we do. And especially because you're so strong in the the Jesus camp of <laughs> looking up stuff. Right. It's really cool to see how deep you go with that. Well, thank you. And I'll go deeper into that in the episode we do. But I think it's really cool that we are taking this approach and taking these episodes a certain way we are because this gives you a huge platform to be the star of this episode because, yes, and then next episode is my wheelhouse. But this is like your area of wheelhousing, so... Real housing, tail wagoning. Tail wagoning. Um, so, but to go back to it, like, there's a huge, huge parallel between Neo and Agent Smith. There's a huge non biblical aspect. There's always got to be an adversary to every good guy out there. There's always going to be that one being that is going to try at all costs to stop our hero. And, and that's Agent Smith. And we can look at him as a as a virus. We can look at him as a firewall that is not good. I don't know. I, I know nothing about firewalls. But we can also then look at Neo as a clean sweep of a computer. I don't know. Your turn. <laughs> you want to try to throw some, some more computer jargon at me? Um, nope. <laughs> not in this question. There are others. Okay. <laughs> So, Neo and Agent Smith are both liberated from their constructs. When Neo destroys Agent Smith in the first film, he was supposed to be deleted. However, he rejected his own programming, much like Neo did, and thus became this rogue, exiled program. They have this yin and yang sort of relationship opposites, and there's even visual imagery that supports this. In the final fight... There's this sequence where they're both going in circles mm-hmm. and going up. And again, that, that, that pulls from and this concept of a yin and yang. They're circling upward, signifying this concept that they're both opposites of one another, but they're all very integral to each other. Right. And they both need to return to source. And I like that... That's how it happens. You know, he, Neo, and him return to Source as one. Right. I, I, I really like that a lot. And the other thing I want to point out is that Neo and Smith were the, not the only ones with a parallel journey here. We as the audience also have a parallel journey to Neo. The beginning of the film, we accept the real 
quote unquote, presented to us. And after Neo takes the red pill, he begins to see the irregularities that indicate that it's just been a dream world, a fabrication. Similarly, the Wachowskis impart a disruption of our own experience of the world as well. From here, as Neo's understanding grows, as he divines sort of this cosmic purpose to it all, we also begin to understand. Often the audience tends to understand something well before the protagonist, and we're just waiting for the characters to catch up. But here we're introduced to this manifestation of Descartes' thought experiment. You know, what if we've been living in a dream world of our own? More on him and other influences later. But the films continue to challenge and potentially transform our own perceptions, just like they do for Neo. And I'm fascinated with how meta that is, that we are also going on this journey as Neo transforms and questions, as Smith transforms and questions, so does the audience. Mm -hmm. I I always thought that that was so cool. Oh, yeah. That's my explanation. (laughs) It's a good one. It's uh, much better than mine, my current one, because... I'm trying so, so desperately to not go too biblically deep. It's okay. So let's talk about the architect, the oracle, prophecy, and free will-ness. So this is where I thought I was going to lose it. Yeah? Yeah. I thought this is this was going to be the point where I'm like, okay, if I can make it to this point without talking about biblical senses, then I'll be fine. But I lost it way sooner. Okay. So why don't you go then i really love the use of terminology of architect and oracle because if we look at the architect and we think of like what get ready to go on a jesus journey with Liv. sorry it's gonna happen <laughs> um if we look at the architect it's you know we, we see architects as creators as as designers my brain immediately goes to ted mosby he builds buildings, he constructs buildings, like he designs the way things look and the way things are handled. Very logistic-minded type people who look at corners, edges, everything is spelled out 100% right in front of them. That's my take on it. And I think that's a really cool quality that we are given in The Matrix as a character who is, by design the one who's designing every logistic type motive behind the matrix. And we have the Oracle who, when I think of oracles, I think of like these all knowing, all, you know, flowing in the freedom. I don't know, type feel. You were getting that from 300 because that's what the oracles looked like in 300. Yeah, they're flowing in the freedom. They're just like, la, 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 la. You know, they're, they kind of are the prophecy holders um, almost like prophets, you know, an oracle would be like a true prophet, not like a fake prophet, because that's weird. Fake prophets are scary. But like, we, we look at them as like all knowing type beings who have a humanity type sense to them. We have the oracle who has more of a sympathy and empathy type relationship with her people, with her beings that live with amongst her and she kind of is more relational and sees more of the people of the matrix opposed to the architect who sits in his little weird beehive of television screens and we only ever see him come out of that at the very end of revolutions so i i find that it's really cool that we see a logistic mind talking to 
Neo about prophecy and then a very human aspect of the Matrix talking to Neo about prophecy and getting a very clear-cut answer from the architect of like, you're going to pick either A or B. Here are the six other people who came before you, who the six other Neos that came before you. I know what you're going to choose. I've seen the prophecy. I've seen what you're going to do. You're going to fail and it's fine. I will succeed every single time. Then you have the Oracle who not only one sits back and says, "Mm, you're not the one. And then later is like totally on board with him being the one, but has this love and this compassion for Neo that is removed from the architect. Like he has no compassion, no love. That's what I'm trying to get at as a very non-biblical start to this. I haven't gotten to free will yet, if you've noticed, and I haven't really gotten to the depths of prophecy yet. Just about the architect and the oracle, I love those characters as polar opposites, kind of like Neo and Agent Smith, that yin-yang type feel, working in tandem together, but also working in opposite together. See, I see the oracle and the Merovingian as opposites. Okay. Because even their philosophies are count like completely flip-flopped of one another. Mm-hmm. The Merovingian uses deductive reasoning, causality, and cause and effect. Mm-hmm. And the Oracle uses inductive reasoning, which is a journey to see what is like most likely to happening. Right. And it's it I, I like that they're dynamic that we don't really we don't we don't ever see them in the same room with each other right we just know that the merovingian hates the oracle mm-hmm. and that's because he wants the oracle's powers of inductive reasoning being right. able to understand humans on that level and right. the choice the effect that their choices will make based on their experiences and he is very cold this has this effect. The Merovingian is probably also more like the architect as well. I was about to say the way you're you talk about the Merovingian, the you know, the Frenchman, is exactly how I view the architect. Like they I almost first I almost see this like creation that the architect made of, of a more relational, more visual presence of himself being the Merovingian. I think of him as like the architect basically plucking a a version of himself and actually putting it in a relational type situation so he didn't have to be there. Well, what's interesting to think about is we know that the Merovingian is a rogue program, Mm -hmm. right? Been around for a really long time. I don't think we actually know what his initial purpose was. Right, right. But I mean, we know what the uh, I've got it written in my notes later, but Rama something he's a a recycling program Mm -hmm. or something like that. But like from a plot standpoint, the Merovingian is responsible for the controlling the flow of information Mm -hmm. and also helping get rogue programs from the machine world into the Matrix and keeping rogue programs in the matrix and preventing them from being deleted. Right. So keeping them off the grid. I, I love the Merovingian's character and I, I've got more on him later, but I kind of see him as more of a counterpoint to 
the Oracle. I do see the Oracle as not at odds. I wouldn't I wouldn't say the Oracle and the Architect are completely at odds with one another. No. But I, I do see contrasting philosophies between the two of them. Right. And I think it's a really I think it's really cool because the two of them do have a perception, an outwardly perception of the two different ways that we can approach faith or two different ways we can approach blind faith or believing or hope or whatever word you want to insert that the oracle has said that the architect kind of steers away from and doesn't really say those words, but kind of alludes to the more logistics of that particular stance. Um, because we do, we, we will run into people who have a more logistic mind of like, okay, this makes sense, this makes sense, and this makes sense. And this is clear cut and to the point. Whereas you have the more charismatic individuals who are like, I'm going to blindly go forward and I'm going to, I don't care how I get there. This is just what the end result is going to be. And I'm going to get there, which would be the, the oracle. And I find myself relating, not in a, in a prophetic way, like I don't sit back and say, oh, I can see prophecy, but I see myself in the oracle a lot of just being very willing to believe what's not just what's in front of her, but believe what's behind that and not being able to see it. And I love that about about her. But there's a lot of people who probably find the architect more relatable, which is perfectly fine. Now, you mentioned one thing that happened that I want to bring back up was that when Oracle infers that Neo isn't the one, mm-hmm. why do you think it was approached in that way? Mm. Well, I don't want to steal your original answer, but it's the same answer that I would have given. So I just want to go ahead and preface with, I know what your answer is because we've talked about this, but that is exactly how I feel. Okay. And there's no there's no other way around it but to go into a gospel type scenario with this is Neo had to die to himself. He had to die first to have that redemption story and have that ability to completely remove the human aspects of him in a way through the matrix and recognize that he does possess the power and possess the ability to save people. He does possess the power and the ability to overcome the limitations of the Matrix. Like, the man can fly. He, but he can't fly until after he's been killed. You know, after he's Sin, or the enemy, or Smith, has tried to overcome him. And he's actually come up and said, mm, Nah, nah, brah. I'm more powerful than you will be. Um, and we see that in the first Matrix movie. I think the Oracle knows that this is an aspect that has to happen and she has to almost not deceive him, but let him recognize the fact that in this life, which she says, maybe, and she, she goes into saying in the next life, maybe you're the one, which is pretty much true. But she basically is saying, I'm sorry, but at this point, you're not the one because he didn't believe in that. He didn't believe in himself. He didn't foresee it himself. He didn't walk forward in truth. He walked with hesitation and doubt, which clouded the Oracle's ability to see the, and she probably did actually foresee him dying. If the Oracle is as all-knowing as 
they claim her to be. But she probably was like, mm, I got to break the truth to you. You're not it. It's not true because this life is not yours. And Neo believes that doubt. The only other point that I'll add is that prior to telling Neo that he's got the gift, but no, Mm -hmm. another life maybe, prior to telling him that, she tells him, no one can tell you that you are the one. Right. Like right immediately before that and hanging above her door is a little sign that says, know thyself, Mm -hmm. not know what someone else tells you. Right. So it's re- it really is something where Neo has to realize the truth for himself. And to your point, she didn't technically lie because she says another life, maybe. Neo doesn't become the one until after his resurrection. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's really also really, really interesting that so many of the characters that we're introduced to who have seen the Oracle have all been given some form of prophetic word or prophetic statement spoken over their life that they would interact with the one in a certain stance. Trinity doesn't truly fall in love with Neo until after he's dead. She doesn't kiss him until after he has quote unquote died. She has this like barricade, this wall up against Neo. And we see this kind of cold shoulder to him of deniability because she knows what she's going to do. She knows her path, but I'm only led to believe that she doesn't believe in Thomas Anderson because he's still Thomas Anderson until he dies and is resurrected. And he looks at Mr. Smith and is like, "Uh, my name's Neo, like back up. Morpheus is also told in different aspects that he would help Neo. Mm -hmm. And he believes in Neo the whole time. He has this blind faith, even though Neo almost flat out tells him, hey, Morpheus, uh, hate to break it to you, but the Oracle said I'm not the one. He's like, nope, I don't care what the Oracle says. I know what I believe. He believes that whatever the Oracle says is what you needed to hear. Exactly. Which isn't far from the truth. Yeah. Later, Naomi goes and talks to the Oracle, and the Oracle tells her, Neo's going to need your help. She doesn't say, the Oracle told me the one is going to need my help, and I'm going to be able to offer him a solution to the to the problem he's pre- you know presenting. She clearly says, Neo is going to need my help, and I'm going to be able to offer him my services, which we don't know until, you know, the final movie, until revolutions right but even then it's like all these people know neo's the one but he he isn't supposed to be the one until he's resurrected and there were multiple times that morpheus asked naobi about her oracle visits and she mentions she tells me the same thing every time i go in exactly what i need to hear we can only assume that maybe that same thing is neo's going to need your help so this raises a another really interesting thought and question. We briefly touched on the concept of free will in our last episode. Mm-hmm. And with concepts like the prophecy and this oracle fortune teller, as the Merovingian calls her, what are your thoughts about 
the presence of free will in these movies. Is there free will in these movies? Absolutely. Is it an illusion? Oh, no, I don't think it's an illusion. I think I think once we're presented with a prophecy or once we're presented with a path in front of us, because inevitably I'm going to take this in a biblical route. I'm shocked. Wow. <laughs> we as Christians are given free will. But what are the, you know, what does that mean when we have an all-knowing father, an all-knowing God, who is going to, at the end of the day, know what choices we're going to make, you know? There's constantly people saying, theologians, pastors, speaking paths in front of us. You know, we have a path, and that's the path we're going to follow, and God knows what that path is, and that's just the way our life is going to look. But the question can be presented, is that free will? Well, yes, because we don't technically have to go down the one path that God has presented us. We have choice throughout our whole entire life. And we can choose whether or not we walk this direction or we walk that direction. Neither one are going to be unblessed unless it is completely away from the Lord. But we have the freedom to choose if we follow what we feel like the Lord is giving us as a prompt or we follow what our flesh is going to want desirably and what, what we want to do on our own. We're presented that free will in becoming Christians. We have a choice. We either die to ourselves, accept the salvation that Christ has given us, and move into a selfless lifestyle where we will stumble, where we will fall, where our human flesh will come into play and try to knock us off of this quote-unquote path, which I don't believe we're on like a straight and narrow path. I think of it as a pasture, but that's a whole other topic. Or we can choose to say, you know what? That's great. That red pill is fantastic, but I'm still going to stick to this blue pill because I truly believe that I don't need a higher being to tell me what I can and can't do. And that goes back to, you know, the red and blue. It goes back to the choice of because we have the free will and God doesn't sit there and say, oh, tough, you're going to still come over here. He says, okay, you don't want to choose me. That's fine. Go live this other life, which is, you know, free will, your choice. And I'm going to get super preachy, but, you know, at the end of the day, this is what I believe. So our listener out there, if, if this is against what you believe, this is just my my choice of belief. The blue pill, which we talked about in the last episode, has a beautiful pasture looking option. We can live whatever we, however we want to live. We can do whatever we want to do without the confines of feeling guilty and convicted through sin. We can follow the Lord where conviction is going to take place, where restrictions are going to take place, where we can, you know, we have, we follow quote unquote the rules. That doesn't give us salvation, but we follow a set of rules. We follow a set of guidelines through the Bible. And there's free will within that. But the fence gets put up in our pasture. The fence gets put up in that that green field of, okay, this is kind of where your, your viewpoint needs to change. This is where you need to start living more Christ-like opposed to living more selfishly. There's still free will in that. And there's still that ability to have free will in that. But it's more confined to conviction. I say all this. Because I think we still fully have free will. I could have chosen, chosen, I could have chosen to swipe left on you. That's a choice. 
but I felt this conviction in my heart and I felt there was something different about you that I needed to know. And I needed to know who you were. I had a choice. You are the person that I know the Lord has set out for me. You are the one that God has handcrafted for me to marry. I know that. And a lot of people don't believe in the one. I put air quotes around it. A lot of people don't believe in that you fall in love with the sole person that you're, you know, you're supposed to be with. I believe that. And I believe I have a choice. I believe I can follow that ideal and I can follow that belief and I can follow that conviction of you are the one and I fall in love with you. Or I can choose to say, you know what? I'm wondering if there's something else and miss out on an opportunity that the Lord is blessing massively. There's blessings on either side, but there's bigger blessings following the Lord and following the conviction that he gave when I first saw your picture. And I was like, that's him. Maybe not in that moment, but there's something about him that I have to know. So yeah, there's free will in that. Can you bring it back to the matrix? Oh yeah, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Or is it an illusion? Okay. Is there a presence of the prophecy? Wow. Oh I got so I got so passionate for a second. I was like, I'm very flattered. And that's so sweet. But let's bring it back but to... back to Matrix. Let's bring it back to the Matrix. I think all of that is present in the Matrix. All of those aspects are present in the Matrix. Neo has choices. He can go this way or that way. He can, you know, save, he can save Trinity or save Zion, but he makes the active choice and he feels the conviction of, I need to save Trinity and then I can also save Zion. He believes that he can do it. He believes that there's an, uh, there's another route that is not presented in front of him because he's convicted by who he is and what he believes. And I think there are multiple areas and facets throughout the entire matrix that free will is very present in the matrix as a program because Neo, Thomas Anderson, could have chosen to not follow the white rabbit. He's prompted at the very beginning, wake up Neo, follow the white rabbit. And he chooses right then, oh, okay, I'll I'll do that. He could have not. He could have flat out said, no. He could have taken that phone call and said, eh, I'm not gonna do this. And he does choose, he does choose to not obey Morpheus. Morpheus. He does choose to not obey Morpheus and get on the scaffolding. But to be fair, like that's all orchestrated by the architect. Right. But the end... He falls right into that from the very beginning. It's about how he returns to source. He was always supposed to believe in this manufactured prophecy that they came up with. Right. As as almost a measure of control for the people outside of the Matrix. And yet, Neo finds that third door. Yes, I would say that's probably the only... I'll I'll get into it in a second when I give my answer, but I think that might be the only instance of actual free will in the Matrix. Okay. I see free will way more often in the Matrix than that just one moment, though. Let me revise that. There's very few examples of free will to me in the Matrix, but that being one of the very few. Right. Can I give one more example of my opinion of free will? The Oracle says that Morpheus is going to die for you. And Morpheus is a character that doesn't die at all because Neo chooses to not believe that and takes that free will into his own hands and says, "Mm, 
I'm going to go save him. I'm going to go save the person that prophetically has been said is going to die. And he doesn't die. Morpheus doesn't die. No, because the some of Neo's experiences up until that point have articulated how important Morpheus is. Right. And how he's a very necessary and crucial person. And this is a guy that's put so much faith in Neo and believed in Neo. And then Neo just found out that that's all a lie. Mm -hmm. And Morpheus is willing to die because he's the one. Right. Neo in those moments is basically like, that's all a lie. I need to save Morpheus. Right. Because of that. And that's that to me, I don't I don't see the free will in that because of the fact that that all was orchestrated by the machines. Okay, I disagree. But that's where I really love having these discussions with you. And one of the things that when we do discuss, I constantly bring up like that you challenge me on to think differently about these movies, because I, I definitely see Neo's choice in that and his ability of deciding to believe yet again another aspect of what the oracle is saying to him because he could have chosen to believe this whole all three movies that he was not the one and then he becomes the one and chooses to believe that that's actually a fact the oracle just told him you're not the one sorry oh and morpheus is gonna die because he believes in you so deeply he changed, in one movie, he changed both of those outcomes by choosing to believe that he can make change, which I like. I think the more significant one to me is what happens at the end of Reloaded. Okay. But I'll, I'll get into that. No, I, I, I like that we have different perspectives on all this. So for me, you know, is free will an illusion in the matrix yes and no for the population enslaved within the matrix i would say yes uh for the 99 percent that don't have that splinter in their mind mm -hmm. free will does not exist i talked about it before where there's only the illusion of choice giving humans the sense of free will introducing this aspect creating an anomaly the one someone that could control the matrix so the architect sets up sequences of events that will eventually lead the one back to the architect and make yet another choice. Return to Source and save Zion, or return to Matrix and save Trinity. It's a method of control that the one falls into, and in a sense, regardless of whether or not Leo... Leo. Regardless of whether or not Neo is liberated, he does not have free will or a choice he was predestined for it. He finds his way to the architect, but he chooses back to enter back into the matrix. And for me, this is where the unexpected happens. This is where the free will comes in. Neo learns to tap into the source code at right. that point, allowing him to truly subvert the greater illusion and actually have free will and the ability to break that cycle. So long as they are within that cycle, there is not free will. Okay. And once you br once that cycle is broken, then you start breaching into free will free will territory. And that's where Sati came in or mm -hmm. Sati came in. And I'll get into that more later, but through that experience, Neo was able to see the light 
literally mm-hmm. see the light and broker the arrangement with the machines to spare Zion and live in peace, as opposed to just returning to source, rebooting Zion, and rebooting the Matrix. Now, in the pre-redeemed or awakened world, the children of Zion are operating in this mindset where the machines are this faction that needs to be fought, not integrated. Mm -hmm. We talk about returning back to source. There's this separation and alienation, and Neo begins to see that there is something more to them and is going to choose a different path now that he's connected to that source. The Oracle couldn't possibly know that, but she believed, Mm -hmm. as she says, which is why only the one could know this and see the interconnectivity. I feel like the Oracle had some sort of sense of the interconnectivity, but I feel like Neo truly divined that interconnectivity, which is why he needed to go to the heart of Machine City mm-hmm. to resolve it with Babyface, Deus Ex Machina. Right. So that's my answer. <laughs> that's awesome. And no, yeah, I, you know, I definitely agree that there's a cycle broken. But I think there's a huge symbolic moment when the architect says you are the seventh, sixth one, because, you know, a cycle has to be broken. And then we're given this ability of seeing, like, there's potential rest in the future. You know, we have that sixth Neo, sixth the one, sixth Keanu Reeves standing there questioning with all of the other ones on screens behind him completing this cycle and then breaking through it, saving both Trinity and Zion. I just think I see more free will prior to that leads up to, for me personally, not discrediting your your ideals on this, but I see more of a cycle breaking throughout each, mo- like throughout moments throughout both movies before that, that give us that clear, like, Neo's going to break this cycle. This Neo will actually do something different for me. Okay. Personally. I love talking about this stuff. It's fun. I know. Well, and so real quick, one of the reasons why I feel so strongly about free will leading up to this point, too, is because we see five other Neos in their reactions to the architect, and this is the one Neo that has a calm presence about him. Almost every other Neo has had some form of outburst of anger, as we see through the screens. And this particular Neo chooses to stay calm, cool, collected, and approach this with a rational logistic thought process opposed to allowing emotions to cloud his judgment. Granted, his emotion for Trinity is there. I was about to say. But not his anger. His anger's not there. And we don't see that. And love triumphs over anger every single time. And that's biblical. Sorry. <laughs> it's true, though. Like, we we see more often love changing the course of history and changing the course of the future than hate and anger. And this is the one time, as evidenced by the screens, Neo's not angry. He doesn't come in with this angry demeanor or respond with an angry demeanor. He is overcome with a sense of love and compassion. For one, as opposed to the many. Neo's core design is to 
love all humanity mm-hmm. equally. Mm-hmm. And this one is different because he holds one higher mm-hmm. than all the others. Which I feel like there's a correlation to the one he loves the most and her name. But again, I won't get into that till next episode. Okay. I think there's a reason why he loves Trinity so deeply. Because she a babe. No, that's not why. <laughs> I think there's a deeper reason. I think the like her core essence and who she is is very symbolic on why that cycle was broken. But again, I'll wait. It's fine. So we'll do one more question and then we're going to wrap up this episode and then we'll catch you guys on part two. But obviously technology, artificial intelligence and a digital world play a huge role into this trilogy. Liv, what messages or cautions did you feel like the Wachowskis are trying to articulate through their use of those technologies? Hmm. Again, trying not to get too biblical over here. I think surface level and kind of a obvious one is to not believe everything that you see and not be willing to dive deep or trust in just your eyesight alone, but trust in your gut and trusting in your the faith that you have. You know, I, I go back to this whole idea of Neo sees a cat go across and then he has a deja vu and everyone else starts to panic because they know the actual truth. Whereas Neo is like, oh, deja vu, like, ha ha ha. And he then understands like, that's the matrix literally glitching out and something, something is not right towards them. And it, it kind of is like a deceiving moment for our, our heroes. And that just kind of goes along with this whole, Believing what you're seeing is sometimes not the wisest thing, but believing what you feel and believing that and having that faith, that blind faith, closing your eyes and having that blind faith is a better, mm, what's the word I'm looking for? It's better to go forward in blind faith opposed to seeing what's happening. And we, we get that in the final film. Neo is then blinded. He is fully within his faith of who he is, what his job is, what his purpose is, and he's following blindly. So I think that's one of the things that, and of course, here I am kind of going into a biblical stance because that's all I can do at this point. But then there's also the like very obvious warning of if the world decides to start doing more robot things and having more technology controlling and working for us, that's bad. Don't do it. Cause then they'll put us in pods and we'll have to disconnect. And it's so weird. And you know, I think it's funny because we live in a society right now where everything is on our phones. Everything is within technology. And it's kind of scary to see the parallelisms of today's society in the need of technology to the matrix. But that's the warnings I think the Wachowski brothers were trying to give. Definitely. I think it. It raises this question of like, is technology simply something that we have or does the technology have us? You know, are we already slaves to these pieces of technology that we have on a daily basis? Oh, absolutely. And thinking about going back to like 1999, this concept of having a digital identity was still fairly new. 
people were embarking into this new world, giving them the opportunity to be reborn and assume this other identity online. And at that point, you start to wonder, like, which one is the real, like, which you is the real you? Mm -hmm. Is it the identity that you've fabricated online? Even as you're sitting here podcasting, who are we? Like, are we what we're presenting through our episodes? Nope. (laughs) We are nothing like this. In reality, I am a tall, blonde... Man. Man. (laughs) I'm the man. No, yeah, I completely get you. Ooh, I have a whole thing I want to add to this when you're like. Obviously, technology is great, and we've used it to further our civilization in so many profound and groundbreaking ways. But sometimes these grand advancements come at the expense of something else. And this brings about the anxieties of a rapidly growing techno culture where our dependence on it and distancing ourselves from our own realities. And simultaneously, as I'm sure we'll end up talking about in our Legacy of the Matrix episode, AI represents this marginalized other. Neo recognizes the truth that these are beings of light capable of love and in a selfless act of sacrifice negotiates a mutually beneficial and peaceful agreement with this baby face deus ex machina. And... It's the baby face. It's the baby face. Oh my goodness, the baby face with the really deep voice. That voice scared me the first time I saw it. The voice was slightly terrifying, but could you imagine like an actual baby voice? No. And one th- one of the things that I never really thought of was that was a choice to use a baby's face. Right. And I wonder what the reason behind that was. Oh, I have a whole theory behind it, but it goes along with biblical stuff. <laughs> so more on that with our crossover with Force of Light Entertainment. But all that to say is just to exercise caution with these new digital realities mm-hmm. and what you define as real for yourself, like with your online presence versus what's actually reality. Right. Well, you know what's really funny is we had a very unique opportunity, you and I, as far as going hand in hand with this, how we present ourselves in a technological world. Because we met online. We did. I could have literally portrayed myself as anyone on that website, on Bumble. And you could have too. And I'm sure that there are many people that we came across during our tireless nights of swiping. I swiped for a day and found you, so I was very oh, yeah. excited. Oh, yeah. You went through such a grueling process. <laughs> I was excited because I met you. But I could have presented myself as whomever I wanted and then lived in that reality. And we could have met and I could have still portrayed whomever. But how exhausting is it to pretend to be who you're not for your whole life? And I'm wondering if that's another idea that the Wachowskis, Wachowski brothers were trying to portray of like, the people in the Matrix are actually not who they seem. They're not actually living their best selves. They're not living their truest selves. And 
It's a deeper representation of what some people on this planet are living. They're living a falsehood of who they really could be and who they actually are because they're so afraid of the actual true self that they have and portraying that outwards. I'm pretty certain that you would not have liked me if I was anyone but myself. This crazy starving artist over here. I'm an insane person. You are not an insane person. I'm pretty insane. And you know, we're podcasters. Hmm. We're officially podcasters. We could portray ourselves as any way we we want on, on this. And yet we choose to live in a technological world, put out information and put out our personalities through technology and portray ourselves at our truest depth, whether people believe us or not. Whether people blindly f- have faith that we are being who we are, the only people who know, oh, that's the true version of Dave and Liv are our closest friends who actually know who we are. You know, I was talking to Rachel and she was like, I just love how I can hear you guys banter. And it's exactly like what I see when I see the two of you together. But we could do, we could have literally been other characters. We could have put on a face, put on a mask and been a different person. I could have been Lisa this whole time. You could have been Lisa this whole time. And I could have been Babyface Scary Voice. Like, (laughs) (laughs) there's so many options. And yet, like, having that choice of going back to what our first question was, like, having that choice of being who we truly are opposed to taking that blue pill and going about our merry lives, frolicking and being la la la, like that's just not real. And I think that's another thing that the directors were really trying to portray outside of a faith-based visual. Right. Is we have choices to be ourselves or we can be who we're not supposed to be. And it's up to us because we have these devices that allow us to be whoever we want. Yeah. You want to go a little bit deeper. I can lie on my resume if I wanted to. I could say I've done six billion things that aren't on my resume and then go into work and pretend like I've done all those things. That's not who I am. You're also going to be in trouble when it comes to the reference calls. Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. But like, I'm who I am. I put down my truest self and my reference calls is... (laughs) My reference calls were pretty good. So, you know. Hashtag just saying. Hashtag just saying. That's all. I'm done with that. No, I that's... just thought it was really cool because like we lived that. Yeah, we did. Through Bumble. I mean, that's online dating in a nutshell. Oh, yeah. It's just as terrifying as the, the baby-faced scary <laughs> voice, as you call it. <laughs> baby-faced scary voice. <laughs> oh, but I get chills every time he says, it is done. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about that in our faith episode. <laughs> I think this is a good place to wrap up. Part one. Part one of part one. Yeah. Part one of our takes. Oh, yeah. We're going to go ahead and, and wrap this piece up. We've got a part two coming up. Make sure you check that out. Also, definitely make sure that you check out the episode on The Matrix and Neo's journey versus Anakin's and Luke's journey that we had with WSTR Media. Make sure you head over and check them out as well. Yes. Before we wrap up, though, do you have a tail wagon for us, Liv? I do, but it's not Matrix related. Okay. Can we please talk about Hannibal's ties for a second? Oh, my God. (laughs) Dave and I have been watching Hannibal on Netflix, and sometimes it makes me really sick because... (laughs) 
eating people is gross. Anyway, girl noise. Um, but Hannibal's ties are so ugly and big. Like, why does he have his little triangle part of his tie? The part where it ties together, like the size of a fist. What's he hiding in there? What's he doing with that? It makes no sense. And then his ties are actually ugly. So it's not like they're trying to distract from like, oh, I can't tie a tie. Fun fact, I can't tie a tie, but I know I could tie a tie better than that because it looks stupid. But his pastel-y, gross-looking ties... I can't even see pastel colors. Paisley, that's the word. That's the word I'm looking for. His paisley ties are so dumb. And then, not Morpheus, Morpheus has great ties the whole thing, like the whole time. I just wish he would teach Hannibal how to tie a tie. Will doesn't wear ties, but not Morpheus, Morpheus wears ties, and they're not like the size of his neck. That's tail wagon. You got opinions. I have opinions about Hannibal's ties. They're distracting and I can't focus. They're so ugly. My heavens. It's where all the bodies are buried on the show. Oh my gosh, in his tie. Oh my goodness. At any rate, thank you, Liv, for that. You're welcome. But I think that about wraps up this here episode of Pizza and Parsecs. I'm Dave. I'm Liv. Liv, I want to present you with a scenario. Uh-oh. A priest, a rabbi, and a reverend walk into a bar. They had a great time, had some laughs, and engaged in some great discussion. If you, listener, are looking for the same thing, check out our brothers and sisters over at red5network.com. We are proud to have found our home with the Red 5 Network, and if you like us, we know you'll like them. Make sure you check them out. What the heck? <laughs> last time and i was like i was like all right i'm prepared this time he's gonna set me up i'm like oh he's gonna tell me a joke it's gonna be matrix related because it's faith-based that's why i picked that one my heavens (laughs) but you can check out our show on the aforementioned red5network.com or you can head on over to www.pizzaandparsex.com you can also check us out on your favorite podcasting platforms as well Head on over to bit.ly backslash linkspnp to be redirected to all of the above sites. And you can also find RT Public on there. Get yourself some PNP swag. I think it's pretty sweet. Liv, you're actually wearing some right now. I only wear PNP swag at this point. I only wear podcast <laughs> swag. Okay, yeah, let's be real. I wear more podcast swag than anything else. I've started getting comments on, you just have graphic tees, don't you? Like, yes, I am a nerd. (laughs) But if you've enjoyed us, make sure that you head on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rate and review. It means the world to us, and it also helps get the word out on our podcast. It helps get us in other people's recommended playlists. So head on over, do us a solid, and leave us a five-star. We'd appreciate it so much. We've actually been on the recommended page. It's pretty sweet. And we love our internet friends so very much. Make sure you're hitting us up on our socials at Pizza and Parsecs, giving us all of the hollers, and we will holler back. Holla! And as always, folks, thank you so much for joining us. Mischief Manage, may the force be with you, and God bless. Thanks, guys. Thanks, bye!